How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. And I'm Jake. And you're listening to the Cinema Sasha Podcast, episode 210. Got, got an exciting one today, Zeke. Mm. <laughs> yeah, we do. This is a sippy cup. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> no, it is an exciting one. Maybe for uh, oh, different goodness. reasons than normal. Uh, yeah, that's true. I, I think we kept people in suspense these last couple of weeks. Yeah. Yeah, I'd, I'd say we had a good build. Nice, Chris. We're building to that, uh, that apex, that climax. Yeah, yeah. I think on the, the downhill now, it's very exciting. I mean, no, we we will, of course, you know, prolong the career update until it's appropriate. Zeke, you mm. know, we, we've got a very careful structure in the show. We do. We don't want to deviate it from too far. But if you've been keeping track, you may have wondered that 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 short film you guys mentioned has that been shot? No, no, no. We we didn't do it. We decided not to. I'm kidding, of course. We did. <laughs> we shot three full days on Skin and Blister. There's still a little bit of work to do, bits and bops here and there, but the vast majority, I guess, principal photography, if you really want to focus on the word principal, main part, I suppose, of the mm. shoot has been completed. It was a wild ride, Zeke. <laughs> I like that you, you're you like, let's hold off on career updates and then proceeded to try and segue into career no, updates. No, um, I'm giving listeners context where it's like our last week has been incredibly hectic. It has been incredibly just hectic. Just like the the lead up to sh- the shooting, it's always a it's always um crunch period just in terms of yeah. getting everything set for the final day and then three days, excuse me, three nights, mm. you know, 7 p.m. to 3 a.m. shoots. Um yeah, <laughs> it was. Well, it was certainly not an easy production, and we'll get into that all soon. I think that that's almost prefacing why I've watched really jack all in the past week. As have I watched absolutely <laughs> nothing. Yeah, but that's except okay. the film of the week, which also mm. is a bit loopy, and much like you would be at three a.m. in yeah. the morning <laughs> on a film set. Exactly. Yeah, I think I think the characters are performing the way the way that some of us may have felt yes. <laughs> by the end of the shoot yes um but of course more into that very soon zeke we're doing a director's corner george miller george miller that's right very exciting times do you have any trivia from the film mad max well there is a lot of trivia it's mad max is one of those films that's mm. iconically brought up in for australian filmmakers and yes. australian film a million stories in the making of yeah. yeah. Um, so we'll, I'll go with this one because I find this one really interesting. The get out of jail free card that Goose gives to uh, <laughs> Triker was an onset joke, but because of the limited budget, the biker gang was an actual biker gang. Yeah. Uh, the vigilantes, and they had to show up to set each day in costume with weapons, <laughs> and they had nothing but a letter if the police pulled them over, yeah. saying that this was a film. So, for all those biker gangs out there, if you want to get by, apparently, there, that's all, you, how you do all you need. We'll just make another Mad Max. Oh, of course. Go on, go on. Well, I, it's funny. I heard a story from a friend of mine, um, a friend of a friend who was one of these bikers that was on Mad Max, and a very very much that played out as real. They were running late for set, driving on their motorcycle with fake prop guns and these leather jackets with the, you know, the icons on them. Uh, 200 miles an hour and they got pulled over and they kept trying to explain hey this is for a movie i'm headed to a movie set you want to come with me and so that cop ended up like literally um what not follow but what's the word you know like the start of the uh the untouchables (laughs) or the uh, untouchables untouchables whichever one it is whether they basically patrolled them back to the set 
and then stayed the day on set, <laughs> which I thought was a great story. So no, completely true. Um, but I, that's a cool detail about the specifically the get out of jail free card. Yeah. yeah, my fun fact is to do with our director, of course. And not only the fact that he completely self-funded this film, which I think the budget ended up being about four hundred thousand uh, dollars, but out of his own money through his work in an emer- as an emergency room doctor, which I thought was particularly mm. interesting because he goes on to talk about how that not only inspired the film, but a lot of the specific car crashes and injuries that characters have came from his days working there and and what he observed because apparently it was very common motorcycle mm. and vehicle accidents. So, yeah. There you go. There, you, is, you... there is a lot of vehicular side in this. <laughs> a lot of destruction and chaos. Yes. As you would expect from a yeah. Mad Max film. No, obviously, yeah. I mean, it's a, we'll be talking about it in the second half of the show. Jake, I'm going to take a guess that this okay. a wild film guess. features on the poster behind me. It absolutely does. Yeah. The 1100 films you must watch. Of course, it's on there. I did it on my document, no. And I was like, what? No. I had to like run over to the poster to confirm. And sure enough, I just hadn't updated it yet. So it, a resounding yes. And I think it absolutely should be. Um, not even necessarily for just the film and the quality of the film. But like you mentioned earlier, it's resonance in Australian cinema and, and even international cinema. Mm. And the effect it had on, on international audiences. And the fact that for a long time, it was the uh, the most profitable indie film of all time for a good two decades which is i think that's something we forget about mad max it does a lot of things there was a lot of things that happened on that set but it also made a ridiculous amount of money so yeah i i think just for all of that that story the behind the scenes story i think it should be on there because the poster it shouldn't just be about quality films it's all subjective at the end of the day Mm. but if you want to watch a thousand films out of appreciation for the art i think part of that should be you know, well, the the outer context of the film and its effect on people. So, yeah. Would you want to put this on your poster? I think you have to. Mm. Whether I, you know, like the film or don't like the film. Oh, um, interesting. Which we can talk about <laughs> in the second half of the show. Um, yeah, you have to. For all the reasons you just listed, it's very hard to argue against that point because it's such a unique film. Mm-hmm a unique property and especially at the time it, it's such a a film that had no right to be as successful as what it ended up being no. <laughs> um you know and it was one of those films that launch padded you know launched mel gibson's career yeah. like it's it's a platform for that and it's such a unique film for an actor to get their like launch from mm, yeah um uh, you know, obviously, Mel Gibson's definitely cooled in, in later years. But, I mean, this is 10, 15 years before, you know, Braveheart, which is mm-hmm. arguably probably the pinnacle of Mel Gibson's career. Um, I know he started to shift more behind the camera. Yeah. But um, if we're talking about his, his on-screen presence, then, yeah. I mean... It's such an interesting film to get a, a break from. <laughs> um, but we can talk about it in the second half of the show. Yes, of course. Um, we can get more into that later. But yeah, obviously, this is when I ask you, have you watched anything in the last week? <laughs> oh, I can straight say I've watched nothing nope, other than no. the film of the week. So. Fair enough. Well, I did technically catch the second episode of Last of Us HBO. I snuck it in last night. I couldn't believe it. I was so tired. But um, not much more to add 
I'm and I'm I'm wondering if this is the kind of show where I am going to mention it. But even Better Call Saul, I didn't talk about it every week. I just every yeah. few weeks I'd mention it if we got got towards the end of the season or not. Um, but it is a very important IP for me, and I'm also just incredibly curious how because this is the thing that people aren't talking about as much. It's not whether this like oh it's a video game adaptation. Is it finally a good one? Like that's not the end of the conversation because this is a continued series. Mm. And generally, I'm going to assume the quality is generally going to be consistent throughout because the whole season has already been seen and reviewed yeah. by people and that's the consensus is that it's all great but i found this one particularly interesting because it was actually directed by neil Druckmann himself it's the only episode he directed so i was wondering how his directorial style translates to live action and on screen um obviously we've seen it in video game form and we've actually seen it in play form because they did some scenes from the last of us game on the stage and they live streamed it so i saw that and it was interesting to see how they translated um, but this is with different actors doing the same lines. Yeah. So I thought that would be really interesting. And my takeaway was not even the performances, but the fact that this episode felt very like, we need to make this look like the game. Like we're going to have so many segments where characters are crouching behind things, throwing water bottles, like pushing bookshelves out of doors that are blocking you. It's like, those are all the things you pad in the video game to gain hours. So I thought it was very strange that this episode was kind of just that for a lot of <laughs> interesting a lot of it yeah i yeah i i thought it was very interesting i was i was like ah okay really lean into like those like even like hoisting people up up a barrier that usually people are like that's a very video gamey thing because like how much like upper body strength do people really have (laughs) to do things like that but they do it so i was like okay fair enough um we'll see i'm still enjoying it i don't think it's like the 9.6 imdb great everyone's getting it Whereas like it was higher than Breaking Bad by technicality for like five seconds and people ate that up and it's like, guys, come on. It's been one episode. It was good. It's sort of maybe I great, mean, it's but... like the letter the letterbox equivalent when mm. like everything everywhere all at once came out as like yes. four point six. And yes. they're like four point six out of five, which I think it's cooled down to about four point one. Oh, I don't know if it would have dropped that hard. It definitely dropped. It dropped hard on the uh what's it called the top the top 250 narrative films because it hit first place for a couple of weeks and we kind of called it i remember when we did that film i said i'm like it's going to be off the number one is it 4.4 4.4 so it's, it's still-, still pretty good but you're right it's a drop off and i think i'm actually a little surprised parasite didn't have that i think parasite's probably still a better film um but yeah i think you're right there's that that effect of in the moment everyone's excited and there's a lot of films on Letterboxd, especially ones that go through festival runs and have like acclaimed directors that start high and then drop low or start low and then kind of gain traction with general audiences. So I think as long as you're aware of the context and that's fine and it's interesting metadata. Yeah. And I think Letterboxd do sort of account for that in their like end of year wrap where they do sort of categorize films that do sort of ebb and flow in terms of their rating. Yeah. So it's all really interesting and I feel like I'm going to have that with The Last of Us show. I'm, I'm, it's very well made, but... I'm also like, I don't think it's like a masterpiece. I still think the game is is immensely better. I still prefer the performances, the line delivery, all of that in the game. But we'll see, we'll see. Yeah. But that that's it. I I literally I was hoping to watch the menu. My God, Zeke, I need to watch this bloody film. It's good. It's all good anyone film. talks about. It's a fun film. <laughs> I I've seen the memes. I get it. She eats a cheeseburger. I just I don't know. I don't know what it means. <laughs> 
the memes just done to spoil the movie for me, Zeke. So well, I need, hopefully, I need hopefully to you it. can catch it between now and next week. Yes, I'm very hopeful. I'll be a little more, have a little more time on my hands this week, yeah. hopefully. <laughs> so I guess then we just bridge into a career updates. Yeah, well, I guess, I guess we can talk a bit more about the film set for right. you, really long nights. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, obviously, reveal what you want to reveal. Don't reveal what you sure. don't want to reveal. Story-wise, um, yeah. I'm not going to be that inquisitive and not press you for answers. <laughs> but, yes, we have spent the last... What does this mean? What does that mean? <laughs> yeah. The last three nights in uh, in the hills, Perth Hills, mm. um, shooting uh, your short film. Yeah. It's, it's great because we spent so long trying to find a location. Yeah. And... It's one of those films where there's a myriad of places it could it could take place in, and like it might add a bit of different context to the story, but generally the conversation that occurs in that film could happen in like one of ten places. Yeah. And we we went to fire stations, we looked at gas stations. Originally it was the side of the road, and my God, thank the Lord we didn't like do that, because <laughs> Blake very much convinced me like no, you're gonna want like, a place to be there. And it makes sense narrative-wise is, like, the characters actually have a, a reason to go to a particular place instead of a random off the side of the road. Um, but we ended up at a church, St. Swiffin's in Calamunda, Les Murdy, sort of right on the I will ask one question. Yes. Because I remember it was a fire station, and then I said to you, why does it have to be a fire station mm. necessarily? It just yep. sounds like it needs to be an iconic place. And then from there, your thought process moved to side of the road, and then your DOP... Blake yeah. has clearly course-corrected that, but how did we end up in the Perth Hills <laughs> at, a, at a church? Well, uh, to answer the Perth Hills aspect of it, it was Blake's suggestion because I was getting a lot of people saying, the f- reading the script, they kind of felt like this was like a down-south story, like kind of small community, certainly not in the city, based in the city. So there was a bit of question of maybe we should like trek it down two hours get accommodation for everyone and then just do a big weekend shoot there which you know for andy newcomb one of our soundies that's exactly what he did for his film a couple of years ago um and i sort of ummed and art about it but then it was it was blake's idea to go to kalamunda because like well that kind of has a similar look to it and you get a lot of bush and forest and yeah uh, it doesn't necessarily have down south but it definitely doesn't no. have metropolitan Ex- exactly exactly it, it has very north perth vibe northeast perth yeah which i think added to that isolated feeling that i was going for and i think i took that too literally when i suggested let's do it just on the side of a random road yeah um and i think i think actually seeing you know those bushes and the perth hills and then the architecture of the church which is you know 100 years old i think that adds way more character to the story but to answer that church question specifically i mean for me it was one of those things of i wanted a location that that didn't have to have text on the front of it for you to know what it was. You know, you know what a fire station looks like. You kind of have these big red bricks and the garage doors, and if those are open, then you have big mm. fire trucks by them. And a church is yes, a, a church. fire station from the 1950s. <laughs> looks like that. Most of them are just in big industrial buildings now. No, a lot of them. A lot of them. I mean, we went through a good 20, and then we even scouted one, and they were happy for us to shoot there, just not past 11. Which now that we've shot Zeke. <laughs> You would have seen it would have been pretty have problematic happened. if we had to wrap at eleven. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, so it's... we we were like, "Yep, that is absolutely fair enough." Well, it was a very pretty location. It was just interesting yep. that it's just where we ended up. But it's nice yeah. to see that sort of segment like broken down. 
Um, it's a gorgeous mm. location. Um, yeah. Well, what I will say about the church is that I think it actually adds a lot of subtext to the conversation they have and, and the iconography. I didn't even realize until later. I'm like, oh, this is perfect. Is we have a literal cross in the film. Yeah. We didn't shoot that scene this past weekend, unfortunately, but it's like, oh, that is visually juxtaposed with a cross that's on top of this building we're shooting at. And it's just things like that where I like that those connections can be made now without it being overtly, you know, said how they're connected. Yeah. I mean, I made the joke that with my Del Toro sort of Christianity overtones. Oh, yeah. But... <laughs> um, than, yeah, it is one of those interesting things, and this kind of applies to pretty much any film. Yeah. But how a location how broad a location can be but then when the film shot you wonder how, how did I think of anything else other than yes, the shot that you yes because it's you know one of the first shots has a character sitting on the front steps and yes. it's like such a great way to start the story mm. and it's like you wouldn't get that at a fire station no or, or at some rand like it's such an weirdly perfect start yeah that you you kind of scratch your head you're like how, like how wasn't that the plan from the beginning beginning yeah um no, you're absolutely right and it is very interesting um but i mean i think one of the f- the funny things we can talk about is stuff that you don't expect to be on your <laughs> so i said it i i went to this location maybe six eight times before we started shooting and we had absolutely no inclination that there was a massive beehive right next to the church who love to check out all the pretty bright lights that have to be shined on a night shoot. Um, we were completely swarmed with bees the entire three nights that we were there. Yeah, the third <laughs> night probably was the best of the three nights. The second yes. was the worst of the three nights. But the funny thing about the first night was one of these lights started to smoke. Mm. And everyone started to get a little concerned. Like, what they on were earth like, is going on there? Yeah. Because <laughs> to put in perspective, these two out of three nights were really hot, the yep. first two. And then the third one was a little cooler, but still pretty warm. Mm. And obviously being in fire season in the bush, um, you know, you've got the fire ban stuff or or the fact that if there was a fire, it's like really dangerous. Yeah. So I think everyone was a little concerned on that first night when it started smoking, only to take it off and see these bees were going into the light <laughs> and just getting scorched. And it was the weirdest... You never thought you'd ever have to smell charcoal bee, but that's what uh, charcoal yeah, bee smells like. it was a weird like. smell that it emitted, especially when everything got t- taken down at the end. I was like, oh, no. <laughs> yeah. Blake has easily one of the funniest behind-the-scenes videos. Oh, my God. Yeah, well, he filmed one of the pack-downs and there was literally, like, 30 live bees just inside one of the lights that they had to take down. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, uh, quite a few of us got stunned. Pretty much the whole camera team got stunned, of course, having yep. to take all that down. I actually got stunned on the first day, which I I really was actively trying to avoid that pack-down because of that specific reason, and I still got stunned. <laughs> but, hey, second confirmation, I'm not allergic, so... There you go. I, I, my fear is becoming more irrational by, Whereas you, by the day. your prop designer was allergic. Was very allergic, so... Um, which, thankfully, we knew because we sent out the medicals to everyone, and it was mostly for food allergies, but, thankfully, she put bee allergy in there, so we knew straight away, oh, that's not good. <laughs> but full credit to Kiara, who... Um, 
very bravely or very sillily was was dressing in less and less layers as the nights went on, which, to your credit, like you said, it it wasn't very cold nights. That's usually mm-hmm. one benefit of a night shoot If is you can wrap yourself up if it's really cold, but if it's really yeah. warm and you've got a lot of bees around you, you want you want to have long sleeves and you know proper boots, Absolutely. Because, especially because the the floor's turning into mud with the rain machine and everything. Yeah. So, no, well, uh, the the logistical challenges of this film, and I'm only just kind of sighing a breath of relief at, at how much we got away with now is is just immense, because there is very 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 expensive gear everywhere, and we're we're squeezing it into the car and shooting through the window and the rain machines just falling and it's. Um, or sprinkling water everywhere, and it, so it's like that was just a logistical nightmare. That thankfully I I barely even had to think about because our camera team were just like so onto it with weatherproofing everything, making sure it was all safe, and just yeah. Um, the camera team, if if you watch this film six months from now and think it's a great film, it's probably because of the camera team more than anyone else. Yeah, they like it's incredible what they did every shot is gorgeous and i think it's a result we talked about this with disconnected many times and i know you said it not very long ago but you've said it for many years is that the thing i should have learned from that film is not to try and do every role yeah because you're gonna yeah you're gonna spread yourself thin in that Mm. regard and i think cinematography is is out of the you know producing writing directing editing all that i think the cinematography was the weakest element of disconnected so and, and frankly, that was the only thing I didn't do on this set. I did still produce it almost by myself. Of course, I had you on set as the first AD mm. to pretty much take over that role from that point on. Um, but even so, it's like seeing that just be done and, and being completely, not carefree, of course, but like worry-free because I know it's all going to look absolutely gorgeous because yeah. i got the right people on it and they're just hustling because most of the film takes place in a car you want and we're going to talk about that in mad max i reckon later in the show but you don't want it to just be a 12 minute conversation from three different angles you're trying to think of all sorts of ways to get interesting angles and to tell the story from this side and this side and how to do it visually when you know there's jumpers being swapped around and things being pulled out of glove compartments and whatnot um but even just dialogue scenes is like well how do we cover this more than just shoot for window shoot through other window so, all right, well, let, let's try and squeeze a slider in there and break the 180 in camera so we go in the back seat and then get all those angles in the conversation. And so, but of course, that results in a lot of very difficult camera setups. Yeah. Uh, so, it, yeah, it, they, they absolutely crushed it. And looking at the rushes, it's like, I can't believe how much we got at the end of the day because we had, what, about six and a half hours where we could actually film anything? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, if that, let me think. Yeah, I'm trying to do the math. Yeah, six and a half would be accurate. Yeah, yeah if that, we're pushing probably closer to six, really. Yeah, of course, because we couldn't really start shooting till eight because, like you said, it's bushfire season. It's a hot Australian summer. The sun doesn't go down until it damn well feels like it. So yeah, and it ended can't up shoot anything before eight. <laughs> being a lot of, um, you know, we ended up gaining momentum over the over the days. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting because it really shows um, the difference that having five or six extra hands or five mm. or six different role people makes. Yeah. If the if the if the the machine's working, and sort of everyone's sort of 
fulfilling their roles or doing their roles and yep. just staying sort of in their lane. Mm. And obviously those lanes intersect with each other and clash with each other, but they're meant, it's an, org- it's a correct clash. You know, I rem- you know, it's like something that's supposed to happen. Otherwise, if, if one lane's, you know, if one's getting a little bit too much emphasis, then mm. the deficits start to show in the film, whether yeah. it's, you know. Well, that's it. Between not even just what you see in the film, which would be performance, lighting, production design, you obviously want those all to gel. But then from a production behind the camera standpoint, I mean, it's pretty much between you, me, Jared, and Blake. We all have to align on not necessarily a vision, but how do we go about doing all of this craziness in this many hours and do it correctly and you know between finding the the best most efficient way to create a shot list and to get through stuff but also not doing it in a way where the, we make the actress's head spin in terms of jumping between scenes and finding that balance and i think mm. day two especially was one of those moments where it the day got better and better and better as we went along because we were able to solve all those problems and i think everyone walked away really happy with how that day came out. I mean, I, I said it then. I think the second day of the shoot was probably my favorite day on any set ever. And I'm maybe a little biased <laughs> because it is my set, but like, uh, it was just such a great feeling. Mm. It really was. And I'm, I'm glad that just so many people seem to have so much fun doing it. We're so focused, so committed, especially Diane, who was a representative of the church who you know, really wanted to be there the entire... I, I remember pitching it to them. Yeah. You know, the reverend and, and a couple of the, the people who help out there and saying, like, we're going to be shooting till, you know... I said two in the morning. It ended up being three in the morning every every night. Um, and they said, well, we would much very much prefer to have someone there supervising while you're doing that. And, of course, the public liability insurance and all that. Um, and Diane ended up doing all three nights. And she was just, you know, the sweetest lady... Yeah. Just cracking jokes at four in the morning. You know, obviously it was like, I would like to go to bed sometime this week, <laughs> but was an absolute champion in sport about it. So I can't thank her enough yeah. for her help in this film and letting us use that location because it's, it's an awesome location. Yeah. It ended location. up being, yeah, ended up being a very efficient set, all things considered, given all the challenges and stuff. Mm. And there were quite a collection of those. So it's, yeah. it's one of those things you... you it sort of feels like a blur talking about it, what, only less than two days on. Yeah. Because you're sort of like, oh, that's already already over. Like, it didn't yeah. feel like it was that long a time. I feel like that was my mindset going in. Well, me and Blake as well, because the amount of pre-production work we did was just bonkers. We had three weeks to, you know, do our lighting plans, source all the gear, pick up all the gear, and all the logistics of, like, getting the van to make sure we can transport it there and then even just our schedules and and then the fact that pretty much everyone on set had two to three hours sleep each night between the shooting nights. Um, that was my mindset the whole time is, you know, once it's done, it's going to be a blur. It's going to have all gone so quickly. We're all so focused and dedicated um, that, yeah, it already kind of feels like, wow, that, that just came and went so quickly. Yeah. And that's kind of how I was off shooting the tiredness and the stress and all that. But... But I had so much fun, man. I had so much fun. It was... Uh, you know, I, I kind of used to be a bit of a George Lucas sort of... Oh, I hate filming. I like being in editing. I have the t- I can, I have time and I can do this and blah, blah, blah. But I loved being on this set. It was yeah. just like that, that 
problem solving and like with the girls i mean and bethany and danny were just so so incredible in this film i was so happy with their performances and and they were such great sports because you know obviously they're pulling these on eyes as well and and giving yeah. that emotionality there were very emotional scenes in this film so and and they had to be very patient with obviously our tight schedule the rain the lighting the fact that the bees were flying in and out of the car during takes there was that just was there was great. so much that they just trooped through yeah so the whole the whole cast and crew everyone i'm so grateful still one more day still one more day. yeah that's what it's looking like i'll get an assembly over the next week done and hopefully we can make it into one fairly uh achievable day <laughs> yeah <laughs> to complete the film i'd say it's about 75 to 80 percent shot shoot your films in january do that's it a- seriously do it because <laughs> guess what everyone's free in january everyone so that's my advice to everyone as go. well so skin and blister it's still being worked on is the indiegogo still open it is absolutely still open you should go and support that because you will actually be funding something that's going to be made because <laughs> <laughs> it's three quarters made there you go <laughs> It's uh, mostly in the can now, but I mean, that was the one thing is like, oh, darn. I, w- I mean, we knew we we're going to have to come back for bits like there's, uh, probably shouldn't say that, but there's like little bits and pieces we always knew we we're going to have to come back to. But now there's like one big piece in addition to those little pieces that maybe could be done one day. I really, really, really hope so. But uh, we'll find out hopefully sooner than later. So su- support the Indiegogo. Um, because I really need money. Because this is a very expensive film. See, <laughs> I I almost cried of joy when I when I found I was going to get my Van Bond back. <laughs> I was like, oh, thank God. <laughs> well, I guess for oh, now would have killed me. We'll, we'll put a sock in that and then keep moving forward. And it's Ex- time for us exactly. to move into the film of the week and our latest director's corner. Jake, who's the director and what are we watching? This week in the show, Zeke, we're talking about George Miller's Mad Max. Tomorrow, in a world gone mad. <laughs> the only law will be a renegade squad of suicidal cops. He's my prisoner, and he's not walking out that door. And the open road will be controlled by gangs of glory roaders. Max is a cop, one of the best. Where does he run to get you? Scoot jockeys? Yeah, no man trash. Mm. Well, I'll add it to my thread collection. Taking place in a dystopian Australia in the near future, Mad Max tells the story of a highway patrolman cruising through the squalid back roads that have become the breeding ground of criminals foraging for gasoline and scraps. Mm. That's such an interesting logline. Are you sure those are right, Mad Max? <laughs> it's kind of yeah. true. It's, it's technically, it's technically yeah. true. I yeah. mean, the opening crawl, it's not a crawl, it's the opening title cards is a few not years too later. far. Yeah, not too far into the future. Mm. Um, so it's... Yeah, look, Mad Max, it's um, just off the bat, it's just such a weird film, isn't it? <laughs> it's, just, it's the most, I don't know, I'll have to watch what I say with this, but it's the no, most I know. It's safe. hallucinogenic, I think it's the, the most hallucinogenic sort of, I think adrenaline fueled is, is yes. 
just the easiest way of, of pulling it. Not in the sense that we use that sort of vernacular, quite cliche for just every action film. It feels like you've taken insulin <laughs> and it's just <gasps> the whole time. Just and like it, shooting this film this past weekend. <laughs> yeah. It's like so weird. It's such a weird film. And I don't know if I, I particularly like it that much. <laughs> no, fair enough. I mean, I think that's what's so shocking about this film is it's totally, you know, ex- in terms of exploitation films, this is like right up there. It's very... I mean, I, co- I compared it to um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre in parts and just mm. in terms of how they integrate horror into this into such a stylistically visual film um it's you know it's it's grind, grindhouse yeah grindhouse sort of aesthetic mm. so you got all of those elements in a film that made a hundred million dollars it's like yeah it feels so odd because it doesn't feel like this film should be in the pedigree that it does and i'm not i'm not i'm not dissing the quality of the film i actually love I, I always love films that like you can kind of see was just put together by tape so loose. I mm. mean, f- film, this film literally would be put together by tape. But what what I mean by that expression is that it, it you know missing one or two shots and the film wouldn't get made. Like it was such a shoestring budget. Uh, the fact that everything was so crazy. The fact that everything was illegal. Everything they did in this film was just completely illegal. Yeah. <laughs> and I love I love that feeling and that energy. It it is pumped into the film and I think that's what kind of saves it for me because narratively it's. I couldn't really care less about what happens it's in the film. It's such a mess of a film. <laughs> and you're probably right. Maybe that's the maybe that's the way to describe it. It's basically like the it's like a film. Honestly, it's like I, I don't know how to describe. It. It's like some of the like one of our friends makes a feature film, mm. and then that film goes on to make fifty million dollars, right? Just at at a sheer. Luck's not the right word because clearly it has a fan base. Clearly it's got retention. Clearly people wanted to see this film because if it's making a hundred million dollars, then geez, it must it must no, resonate it, somewhere. It resonate it resonated internationally, and I think that's I mean that's why people point to this film as like really the Kickstarter, not just for like Mel Gibson's career, obviously. Um, you know George Miller. This is actually his first feature, I believe, mm. which I was shocked to hear about that. Um, not only just kickstart their careers, but the entire new wave Australian cinema movement. And you know, you got like your Peter Weirs out of films like this. If you if you want to sort of trace those dots, yeah. Um, which you're right because stylistically, it's, watching it before and, and comparing it to, you know, those sort of schlock horror slasher flicks. Um, the thing that only separates those from this film is its style, and. I remember when I first watched this a couple of years ago. It was, not, it was actually almost exactly two years ago I first watched this film. Um, this and Fury Road back-to-back before realizing Mad Max 2 was, is actually quite essential to bridging those two worlds because the visual style of Mad Max, at least the ones we think of, is pretty different from what the visual style of this film is. You think of like these you know, barren yellow wastelands. Like the, it almost, yeah. Mad Max 2 almost invented what we think of with post-apocalyptic visuals. And... This film is sort of like one step toward that. Yeah, I, I think in an apt way of... The, the easiest way I find the bridging here, or at least Miller's sort of rationale, is he's almost trying to give us a Planet of the Apes in reverse. Like, mm. he's we're not jumping straight to the apes have taken over and, and you know, humanity's now these mute, brainless creatures, mm. but 
we're sort of seeing the and the future films of that particular trilogy go to bridge that gap a little yes. bit more. And I think we're seeing, yeah, just essentially the prequel to that post-apocalyptic world that we see. It kind of feels like that, doesn't it? Like the backstory to the real Mad Max movie. You know, it's already alluding that humanity's on the down here. We are in a dystopian future, but we're almost in the the way station on the way to the the fantastical... (laughs) The first bus stop, yeah. Um, The fantastical, yeah, dystopian. Because we've still got law and order. Like, yes, Max is a highway patrolman, a part of a organisation. Now they are way more... Uh, they're not quite law-abiding law citizens or anything, yeah. or law enforcers by the book. They are openly allowed to kill people. Mm. Um, they're granted that, that leave. And they're all just a little... Everyone's just a little mentally off. Um, even Max... Either a little or a lot. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So, and you see it from the first, the first interaction, you know, when just before even the Knight Rider enters, yep. it's, you know, we're seeing these two cops and they're, one of them's watching, um, some debauchery happen and then the other one's sort of just, the, the even the way they, the vernacular, the way they're speaking is yep. just weird. Mm. and a little off, almost like language, connotative, colloquial language has just completely <laughs> started to go out the window. They've taken the yeah. Australian slang and they've just gone <laughs> crazy with it. Um, and it is, it, it, it's such an interesting, weird middle station because then at the same time, characters are going to get ice cream. Yes, yes. And, and like, there, there are phone booths and diners and nightclubs... So, um, and, and yeah, like you said, law and order, th- there's a representation of good and evil where these are the good guys and over here are the bad guys. And, you know, you can still find that in Westerns. You still have, like, sheriffs and cowboys and outlaws and things like that. But when you think of, like, a Wild West where it's just every man for himself, this film kind of shows us, you're right, the the descendants into that. And I think if I got to give props to anything about the narrative, it's that it does, its trajectory is that. It just kind of is a downward spiral. I mean... To spoil it, uh, let's, let's spoil Mad Max, Zeke. Yeah. <laughs> that just came 40, out yesterday. What, 44-year-old film? Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, it ends with his whole family being killed and he just extracts revenge after spending the whole film trying to sort of just walk away from the violence. Yeah. And then it ends. It's it like, basically, oh, that, that's it, a downer. It's, <laughs> it's John Wick in the last part. Yeah. And then the rest of it is sort of just existing in this wasteland mm. i'm not a, i just uh, for me i maybe because i'm such a story driven like film lover like yeah. i love a really good compelling story yeah over stylism or or like I'm, i mean i'm the guy who sits here and goes put two people in a room like i love watching yeah. two-person dramas so when i'm watching this film and i'm seeing all of these there's some very impressive car spectacles and mm. I can't believe I'm going to quote White Noise two weeks in a oh, row. I was going to quote but White Noise too. It's like, you know, it's the... It's because you love that film so much. Uh, yeah, I know, right? <laughs> Just the Don Cheadle opening five minutes <laughs> where you promised so much more. You're thinking, oh, this is going to be a real thought-provoking film. And yeah. It ends up being this weird... That film's weird. We've watched a lot of weird films recently. That is true. Um, yeah. Like, And not in the weird as in like a like a midsummer. oh, we're in a weird world. They just feel weird. Yeah, they're just kind of <laughs> disorientating and, and, like, 
on purpose question mark yeah, yeah. well um, i reckon mad max is definitely on purpose yeah i but. think i mean what he's doing with the the I don't know of the particular term what he's doing with the, the film reel, but making it accelerate like, it, I guess it's just fast forwarding it. Well, the, yeah, you're right. It's, it's that adrenaline fast. rush where it's like you want to fast forward to that that you know that moment that beat. I guess you know what Don Cheadle talks about in that scene where that yeah. you get the adrenaline rush of that big explosion occurring, and I mean that goes back to this being really an exploitation film, and it's not even the fact that, like you you know you see like naked girls and that in this film, and it's. It's a very bare bones story. I mean, yeah, you would think any other person would who works on Mad Max, you like, I'm going to make this film called Mad Max, and this is what it's about. You start the film with the family being murdered, like mm. that. That's how, what almost any other director in the world would do that, and and it's kind of put at the end, which, I, like I said, it kind of it's, this feels it, like it, end of hmm. I would say end of Act Two, start of Act Three. I mean, it's rock sure. bottom. It's like literally 17 minutes before the movie ends. Yeah. when she dies <laughs> and then that includes like four minutes of credits so yeah. it's like right at the end there, 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 yeah I mean there, is, there almost is no third act in this film it, it just zips by so it's quickly because it's, it's a bunch of explosions it's definitely got the um, what's the film I'm forgetting I'm just blanked on it I had an easy rider it's yeah, got I was that, thinking of easy rider it's got the time. vehicle sort of paraphernalia there it's definitely got a I mean, and these films do fetishize vehicles. That's yeah. the point. I mean, even in the logline, the original logline, they're talking about gasoline like it's liquid gold. Yeah. And, and it's sort of ironic in the world we live in where petrol's so expensive. <laughs> um, I it's But it's interesting that, yeah, we're, we're talking about this sort of this Knight Rider character. And it goes both ways. It almost breaks every film connection. The guy that's sort of the leader of this gang is killed mm. in the first 20 minutes. Yeah. But his rhetoric lives on in all of these other members mm. in which the, you could argue the head and, you know, the lead antagonist of the film isn't even the last one to be killed off. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, there's like a bit of that satisfaction, but then there isn't like, it's not the traditional satisfaction where, it's the character you're expecting to be killed in the in the final big hurrah that's the one that's killed. I think in terms of like and you know, we've said this before, it's like the narrative is not the selling point of this film. It kind of feels like a story that's getting from A to B with with as many deviations to cars exploding and, and stunts and craziness uh <laughs> along the way. But mm. but what's so fascinating to me and this is what we were talking about earlier with how we sort of look to its sequel in films like Fury Road and Thunderdome and all that, uh, as that's the post-apocalyptic rep- representation we think of Mad Max in, mm. that this feels so calculated as being the thing that's going to lead to it. And it's, I think since the before trilogy, which those weren't made to be a trilogy, mm. they made one film and then years later decided to make another one. And mm-hmm. then years later decided, oh, let's cap it off. Let's do a third yeah. one. And since then, this is the only other film I can think of that, uh, it kind of baffles me. I mean, maybe there was plans to do more, but upon research, because you watch this film and you think, okay, well, we know Mad Max is the post-apocalyptic iconography yeah. that we do, but this film had no budget. It had 400000 So that's when that you, you assume so, they wield... Uh, wield thing... What, what's the word I'm looking for? Well, they, they, they reverted things back. They sort of rolled them back in terms of, yeah. all right, well, we can't... 
do like these big visual landscapes, but maybe we can make these really stylistic cars and like let's give everyone these like steampunk like mohawks and the leather jackets and like let's use like props and set dressing and those things to kind of give it that style Mm. um, that will eventually lead to the bigger budget stuff. But reading, apparently what George Miller said is that from the beginning, this was never going to be a post-apocalyptic film. And the only reason they decided to do that after they wrote the script was because they couldn't afford extras, which is baffling to me. Uh, Which begs the question where's the what's the costume design sort of the wacky sort of depiction (laughs) it's such an interesting way of viewing the world i i think that's that's really interesting to me because i would have thought rock thing i thought i thought it was that we didn't get all that visual flair that we get Mm. in these later films because of the budgetary restraint that's what i fought into an hour ago the aesthetic of of this sort of middle way station into the post-apocalypse, the, mm. the classic dystopian vision yes. that we become, which becomes synonymous with Mad Max is solely because they just didn't have the budget. So they went, right, we're going to do the costumes, do the props. Yeah. And we're going to make this out like the world's falling apart, but it's not quite falling apart yet. I mean, it's kind of Star Wars-esque, isn't it? That's kind of, that's one interpretation is the prequels are like, oh, well, it's all... I mean, I think growing up as a kid, that's my assumption is, oh, well, they made these first because, you know, oh, they're in deserts, mm. while the original films, oh, look at this, flying cars and visual effects, and, and we know how much more complicated the story of the Star Wars movies yeah. is, but as a child growing up, that was what I thought it was. It's like, oh, well, this must be easier to make because it's just in a desert. So, really, that just adds to the weird of the film, isn't mm. it? That it's just he's... <laughs> Say if the assumption wasn't it was dystopian and that's not some producer, a producer person that's a, suggested he should market it as this dystopian revenge film, mm. um, then it's just a very odd action revenge film, isn't it? Yeah, it's aesthetic, much. essentially. I, I generally um, think it's it's a it's a B, B movie exploitation movie that's wrapped around such a weird aesthetic that is so weird, it just kind of worked and resonated with audiences. And they dubbed this entire film with, I guess, American accents because they were so worried that American audiences couldn't even understand what the characters were saying in this movie. And, uh, well, I mean, look how it all turned out. <laughs> but it, it, this is one of those films that's like, look how weird a film can be and resonate with a large audience. Yeah, and that's something we don't really see much of anymore ever. Except, I mean, everything, everywhere, all at once is, say, yeah. is a pretty good example, I guess. But we're talking about the late seventies here. Yeah, and maybe and and not a decade before, you could argue Easy Rider sits in the same category of this weird road trip film. Um, I think yeah. there's more. I mean, there's. And well, I think it's more grounded, but it's psychedelic. So it's like there, yeah. there's something that like you know the hippies can really get into <laughs> into that you know the freedom of driving wherever that that whole life. so I feel like there's enough elements there that are grounded that makes sense but Mad Max is just like crazy psychotic characters in mohawks and leather jackets blowing up cars probably one of the first so, films to use ACDC too oh there you go there's the Aussie flair out there yeah. <laughs> yeah. probably got it way cheaper than uh everywhere else i imagine it's probably the cheapest acdc licensing ever <laughs> give um, it give it another few years or a few decades yeah, exactly it is a it, it's 
I think it's good that you we're sort of on the same page narrative wise this film is it's I don't know it's a shrug maybe <laughs> if that it's very weird it's, it's certainly not the thing that's compelling me about the film and yeah. it's certainly not the thing that's entertaining me I think There's other things to be honest me. I would have to argue it's you know f- for me it's what is synonymous because obviously this is a a director's corner this film mm. really reflects I mean because what Miller's gone on to do more Mad Max films and yes. then Happy Feet <laughs> <laughs> Right. Well, he did like I noticed he did a couple of random ones. Like he did the Twilight Zone movie, which I'm trying to remember if that was like multiple directors working. Or the sorry, the Twilight Zone movie is what I meant to say. Um, and three thousand years of longing. Oh yeah, that's a more recent one. I still haven't caught that. But yeah, that is that is another. Oh what? Oh yeah, of course. So there were several directors on the Twilight Zone movie, including uh, Spielberg and Babe. John Landers. I forgot about Babe. Ah. What, the 2005 No, Pig one? in the City. Oh, okay. Oh, it looks like Wizard of Oz. Nice. <laughs> the Yellow Brick Road. Oh, 1998. I see. Yeah, I mean, that's a shame. I wish I wasn't so busy in this last week to have watched more George Miller films, but I've seen you know, a good majority of the Mad Max films, and I think that that is sort of representative of his style as well, is how those all changed, and I think... You know, for the amount of people who love Mad Max and, and The Road Warrior, and then compare that to Fury Road where those same people hate that film, mm. it's from the same director. It's from the visionary himself. So I think that almost in and itself demonstrates not not a change of tone. It's very much the same tone, just yeah. like j- just pr- pr- you know pushed to the edge further and further and further. Um, not to say the Happy Feet is the same tone as, as Fury Road. <laughs> what a strange film. <laughs> that is also Happy Feet is also a very strange film. That's the thing. I think George yeah. Miller is just a very strange director. Happy V. Yeah, what's well, the perspective of the world? I think it's interesting you bringing up, especially with your trivia, that he was a an emergency surgeon. Because yes. a, a prominent fixture of this film is there are a number of hospital scenes. Mm. Um, Very brushed over as well. Like, you, you would think the scene when the doctor is basically saying that his entire family has died <laughs> would be a bit more dramatic or, or prolonged. But I yeah. think it's to this film's point that it wants to be adrenaline rushing. That it's like in in the shortest amount of time possible, we need to establish that he wants to get revenge, and so we're just gonna like speed through that scene and get him on it back in his car. Yeah, <laughs> and it's strange too, because yeah, because this because this film doesn't allow you almost to rest on emotions or allow yourself to feel for the characters because it just moves it. Such a, yeah, I mean, even the the goose death scene is longer, like is what happens to Goose is longer than seeing him in the hospital and yeah, exactly. that horrific. And it's so interesting because it's, you're introduced to these characters like Goose, for instance, who's meant to be sort of that, you know, as someone who only just watched Top Gun Maverick and it's like, you know, we'll talk about Gooses in cinema. Um, <laughs> obviously Maverick's, the Maverick-Goose relationship in the original Top Gun is yo, ironed Yo, out. you watched Top Gun Maverick in the last week. Not last week, the week before. No, no, no. We have not talked about Top Gun Maverick yet. What? No, we have not. I talked about it on set with you, didn't I? Yeah, you mentioned seeing it. I I don't know how much we talked about it though. I'll bring it up. I'll talk yeah. about it more in next week on the show. Yeah, you got to do it next week now. I'm making That's a point so of weird. that. See, that goes to show how how like yeah, sleep deprived we were. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
but yeah, you know, obviously that relationship's explored way more, and that's a high octane adrenaline action film that definitely follows a more traditional sort of three act structure. structure yeah whereas like this it was like oh here's this funny larrikin motorcycle guy who dies in the first 30 minutes yeah. <laughs> and then then he has you know obviously max goes yeah i quit and then this sergeant guy goes no nah, you're gonna come back after these three weeks and then you forget about goose's death like there's no emotional yep. reconnection there but no I was- no it's, it's just the story point and again like that whole story of him being so like um, I guess traumatized from yeah. Goose's death that or hospitalization I should say that because he's all burnt up and yeah. hand falls out I think there's some great like crash zooms and like horrific images yeah. this film there's so much layered on top of it but it really is an exploitation horror film at the at the very bottom of the pit yeah. at its core you know if you look for the glass onion Zeke yeah, we're gonna mention Ryan Johnson. Later it's on just the show, dumb. By the way. <laughs> <laughs> it's so dumb. It's brilliant. No, it's just dumb. Exactly. There you go. That, that could be your review for Mad Max. <laughs> but but to that point, that story with him wanting to quit, being drawn back out, seeking revenge, it all is just sort of funneling downward to the story of what is going to be the Wild West of the future Mad Max films. Yeah, and if anything, that's that's the biggest positive is it's weird to look at a a film like a first film and be like the only real redeeming quality i can give this film or one of the bigger positives of the film more prominent positives is that the future film you're gonna like a lot more because this film (laughs) well i mean i haven't seen thunderdome but it's pretty much universally acclaimed better than this film not thunderdome the second one yeah uh, road warrior road warrior i I, that's my favorite mad max film this is the second one and obviously i have seen fury road really liked fury road so i know the future films are probably going to be significantly better than this film yeah i don't know about thunderdome but i know i haven't heard much that's the only one i don't own um, so I would love to watch it as well. So yeah, it's it is quite interesting that this film is it, weirdly setting up for for better films to come. <laughs> I think. Yeah, it's just it's bizarre to me. I mean, we have that context now, of course, but imagine watching this in a, in the cinema in 1979, and this this is what Mad Max I'm is. I'm trying to, and I'm sitting here and I'm going like, well, I guess halloween was 70 what 77 and that had a shoestring budget and people love that film but i'm like but halloween has a story <laughs> like yeah like <laughs> you know because obviously we're talking about exploitation the carpenter sort of gore factor we yeah. go on to see the thing not two years after yeah. this film's release so i'm sitting here with my head and i'm like no nah, there's I mean, so the many thing, films around 79 i would rather watch than this film no no fair enough i oh. just think i just think there's something about its style that clearly resonated with a a lot of people because keep, keep in mind 100 million adjusted for inflation like that's that's a stupid amount of money but then i could i mean i guess yeah it's the like the cameron sort of it's the micro version of you know james cameron's sort of avatar right where it's like yeah like you're kind of wondering how yeah i i know maybe two people who saw the most recent avatar and they must and have they must have paid one billion each times. to see the movie <laughs> it's like he's done it three times like uh, well titanic's believe? pretty incredible okay that makes sense to me but even the first avatar's like, it's good yeah but at it's, least it's, the first avatar i can sit there and go Oh, it's because of the 3D aspect. That's sure, why the people... effects, 3D, blah, 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 all of that. The second um, one, 
My head did. My, my I, arms were. I generally thought it would. It was. It had been too long for people to care, and apparently people care. Yeah. Yeah. It's. It's. Yeah. It's fascinating to me. But yeah, uh, to bring it back to the to this film, it really. I mean, it makes sense. I mean, I'll, I guess a lot of the great films out. There, I'm not saying this is one of the great films, but I think a lot of the great films out there are, are very simple genre based. Uh, films that are just layered and layered and layered with the thing that makes them unique mm. i mean you look at star wars as a fantasy story the original and then they just layered it with you know the visual effects and the lore of like the lightsabers and the the visualization of the good and the evil yeah the rebels and, and to be Vader honest that. that's a very apt what miller make what makes miller such a strong director is his visual um like aesthetic sorry aesthetic yeah. His color palette's great. Mm. Like it's actually a great looking film. Yeah, for how cheap it was in 1979. Yeah, it showcased Australia in a really interesting way. I mean, this is probably why people think Australian is a is a desert wasteland. Yeah, they watch this film. <laughs> yeah, it is. I think maybe uh, it's interesting because it'd be interesting to see how international audiences see George Miller cr- collectively. Do they only really like? Like, is this... Because we love... I think Australians particularly love him, especially after Fury Road came out. It's, mm-hmm. like, almost like a proud... A pride thing. Sure. Um, it'd be interesting to see what a, a general consensus of... If you show just an average person today Mad Max, what would their perception would be? The original Mad Max, obviously. Yeah. I, th- I think this film has a special place in people's hearts and... and- I mean, you know, when I saw, I I pulled up. I had a review when I saw it two years ago for the first time, and I pulled it out. And I think that was sort of my my takeaway is that yeah, there's some jarring moments that just make your head spin in terms of the editing and the narrative. But but its style outweighs all of that. And and you know, back to the Don Cheadle quote, you are drawn by all the stunts and the craziness. And I think you know, you you sit there and think, okay, well, what was George Miller going through his head and you go back to that that fact we mentioned earlier where he's seen people coming into the emergency room he's working on them with all these injuries mm. and it's like that is the core embryonic idea of the film is this idea of, of death and destruction chaos and I think this film captures all of that stuff really wonderfully not nearly as much as the future films do it, it's kind of crazy how much this feels like a prequel to those films as opposed yeah. to just the original story but I think from that standpoint, I think that's what resonated with people in a sense is there's there's a, a um a what's the word I'm looking for? Like it's like a natural human element or an animalistic element mm. that maybe we want to hide, but we do love I mean, I love when this film gets like full horror, obviously when the yeah, when the Toe Cutters gang like kind of chases that couple and, and down the road and they start like destroying the vehicle and trapping them and it's like that scene is so elongated it almost feels like we're meant to be enjoying the chaos in that scene even though it's such a horrific thing what they're doing but then the way it like cuts through these close-up of eyes widening before the big explosion or you know these big bloodshot eyes that look horrified the crows there's so many crows that are kind of sneak in and out of this film so i love mm. the symmetry there um i think that's all fascinating and i think as 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 much as this film isn't it's definitely not a coherent film maybe maybe mm. it would have been better to go the john wick route where he's seeking revenge that's the catalyst of the story 
or yep. the um the inciting incident i should say is the death of the wife and the baby and um but yeah uh, it's a little bit of a head scratcher for me but i mean the, the it's like you said you're more of a story person you want like a proper well thought out free out structure mm. in your films and this film is much more focused on style so i think i think that i think that tracks no worries well jake Hmm. What was your highlight scene? Um, I reckon it would probably have to be our introduction to Max. The thing we haven't talked about much is that Max is sort of this this legendary figure in the yeah. world of Mad Max. And, and, and a lot of his films, he's not even the main character in them. This is probably the one exception, is this original one. Uh, and the way, the way the second film, Road Warrior, opens, it's, it's almost like a, like a newsreel monologue talking about how we've gone from from that film to the, the the desert wasteland that that film is and it talks about max as this legendary figure so it's, it's much more of a, of a western there but even in this film when we're first introduced to him you know all the other cops are chasing down um night rider i knew it was night something <laughs> and we keep cutting back to him waiting for his cue where it's like he's like their last call where it's if no one else is going to be able to do it, it's like, well, send him out. And the way yeah. we dolly from the side of the car to the rear view mirror and you only see the bottom half of his face, it's, and then he's got glasses, so it even prolongs that introduction to his character. Yeah. It is a very good opening sequence, yeah. that, uh, the the prologue to this film. Because um, the pacing's there, you really set the tone with the the car chase. Yeah. The- it tells you everything you need to know about what this film's going to be about. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's very good. Um, I wish I saw it before we directed this last um, this past weekend because this this film has got a lot of great car shots. Yeah. How do you do this with a car? How do you shoot this through a car? No, no nevertheless. Zeke, so, what's your highlight scene? Um, I actually think it's not necessarily a scene, more as one single shot that I thought was really effective. Okay. Um, I really like the the death scene of Max's wife and child and particularly the when they're shot. run down that yeah. yeah and particularly the ball and the the little shoe oh yeah shot I, I thought that's a really nice sort of shot um it's interesting because that's so juxtaposed with all the bikies and their deaths when they get run over by trucks and things like that's just yeah. like oh there they go <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's all comical. It, yeah, almost, it's, some it's of crazy. It. Like yeah. they're getting mowed and there's like ragdolling under the yeah. car. And, <laughs> um, and and their death, you're right, is a bit more. I keep saying death. Did she? It's pretty much implied that she's like dying in the hospital or whatever. Yeah, like um, she's not gonna make it. Yeah, the kid's yeah. definitely dead. Yeah. Um, and obviously, you've seen the second film. They're not around in the second. Exactly. Film, so no. <laughs> they're, they're definitely <laughs> dead. Um, yeah, so to, it it was almost like a weirdly tasteful version to a way to do that yeah. for their deaths specifically. Yeah, and maybe that's a. But to be fair, this this film does avoid the violent, like showing that much violence to like civilians and particularly towards mm. like women. Like it doesn't have, like it's all obviously it's yeah, there, it's there, all sort of implied, isn't it? But it's more implied than. Like you said, I think that's what separates it from like a grindhouse or something that goes that next level. Like, yeah. Um, well, you you see some nudity, but it's like the scene when they're they're trashing the couple's car. It cuts away from that. It's like you can have a pretty good guess what they did to her in particular. 
Yeah. But the film doesn't... It doesn't go out of its way to make that clear. It's like, all right, we're just going to see the reaction after. Yeah, it's we, like she's got a horrible. chain around her and she's, she's you know, she's, she's kind of covering herself and has underwear on, so it's... Yeah, it's interesting the film kind of gets... You know, when, when it gets to those it moments where it has every chance to be more, exploratory. Yeah, and it wants to focus more on the sort of the mental sort of the mental spiraling of, of the masculine perspective. It's very mm. toxic in that sense, for sure. Um, you know, it's wanting to focus more on that, but I thought that shot was really, really effective. And it was a good build of a scene. Um, the film actively avoids guns, which I find really interesting. It's not a very... Yeah. You know, like the, the only gunshot the, I can think of is when he shoots into the air with the shotgun, but that's just to get people's attention. Yeah, and and the um the older lady shoots yes, as a warning. As a shot. warning, yeah. But that's Very it. Good. That's probably a budgetary thing as well. It, it probably was a budgetary thing because yeah. obviously guns do appear in the other films. But yeah. it's interesting that this gang seeks out and it does terror solely through their machines, their mm. their motorcycles and. Like handheld sort yeah. of weapons, mostly I mean, like butchers, cleavers, and and weird weird weapons of destruction. So it really, this film really emphasizes that everyone uses their cars, yeah, and, or their vehicles as their means of of weapons. And obviously, that is an aesthetic thing that resonates throughout the whole Mad Max universe. That vehicles are the the, the weapon of choice. Yeah, it's a ve- vehicular slaughter and, and um, combat and all of that. It must yeah. be a theatre thing because clearly the Tokata's gang is... They're, they're theatre students. They did West they did West Side Story before the start of this film. Mm. That's why they're all dancing and singing early yeah. in the film. Yeah, yeah absolutely. That's yeah. it. I've led into that pretty, s- pretty smoothly. It just made me really appreciate <laughs> Death Proof more, to be honest. Oh, I love Death Proof so much. Uh, this film... Because Death Proof has a story, <laughs> and it's a it's a relatively loose story, but it's enough to at least follow. <laughs> like, yeah, look, I mean, there is a story here, but it's it's right. It, it's not. It's disorienting. It's, so, it's sort of weirdly structured. Is I think the best way to, to yeah. put it, and it's clearly not the focus of the no. film. But yeah, I get in terms of George uh, Miller's filmmaking, and and again, his horror aspects. It's like when she's getting chased through the woods by the gang. I think that's an excellently directed scene, the way they're cutting to, like, these just sort of mid-torso shots of everyone mm. running through the trees and, like, the way he built horror in that scene. I I thought that was really wonderful. I just want to see Happy Feet horror version now. That's what I want to see. No, I'm good. Uh, we don't good? see any more Harry, Happy Feet. Happy Aww. Feet. Mad Max Damn. is currently out in wide release or on mm. Paramount Plus, I think it is, isn't oh, it? Oh, well, I watched it on Stan. Okay, Apparently, it's, on, it's on Binge as well. There you go. So, lots of ways to watch it. I've got it on Blu-ray somewhere. There you go. Well, speaking of all those streaming platforms, Jack, mm. what's new to streaming platforms and cinemas this week? Oh, quite a few things. you got You People on Netflix. She's a mixed-race couple meet each other's parents. And that's it. Eh, eh, that's, that's comedic. It does star Jonah Hill and Eddie Murphy. I don't think they're the couple. Okay. I mean, one of them's... The, Imagine. <laughs> I, just, I, I looked it up. I was like, I just need to confirm. Are they playing the couples? Yeah. <laughs> I wasn't too sure. Uh, Come to Disney Plus this week, you have Darby and the Dead, which sees Darby gaining the ability to speak to the dead after a near-death experience. How many times do I have to say deaf and dead in the same sentence? 
Uh, you've also got films like Where the Crawl Dads Sing, which come to both Prime and Binge. And also coming to Prime, you've got the Jennifer Lopez comedy Shotgun Wedding. And I'm very excited about this one. The first four episodes of Poker Face comes to stand this week. It is Ryan Johnson's Case of the Week murder mystery TV show. Oh. Look at him go. Working hard. Stars uh, Natasha Lowen and Adrian Brody. Look at that. That's a good That's a good lineup there. Yeah, so there you go. Each week, it sounds like it's going to be a different case, and I think she's got like a special ability where I think it, it's basically she can tell who's lying and who's not lying. I'm sure there's going to be like a way to visualize that. Mm. Or, uh, I'm sure Ryan Johnson will come. To be fair, but... um, Molly's game did that really well, which oh, okay. was a. Uh, oh my god, I'm blanking on his name now. Gerald something. What am I thinking of? No, I'm thinking of Gerald's game. <laughs> I'm gonna get. Oh, it. Aaron Sorkin. It's a Sorkin. Yeah. It's yeah. A Sorkin he. Film. Yeah. He made that film. That's right. Okay. Very. Yeah. Very interesting. He he did that pretty well with um Idris Elba and. Jessica Chastain. There we go. Oh, fair enough. Now, coming to cinemas. This is the fun part of the year, Zeke. Because mm. all, the, all the films we've been hearing about for the last six months, getting their festival runs and you know winning their Golden Globes and whatnot, they're all finally starting to come out here. Yep. So, for starters, we've got Tar, which is Kate Blanchett as a renowned musician as she prepares to conduct the symphony that will elevate her career. There's a little more in there. I left it out because I didn't want to know any of that. Um, but it looks excellent. Looks really good. Got a little praise. Yep, yep. She's winning every bloody award out there, so, you know, good on her. She's excellent. We've also got The Whale, Darren Aronofsky's latest film with Sadie Sink and the highly praised performance from Brendan Fraser himself. The Brendan Fraser... I can't speak... Renaissance. I can't speak today. My Lord, I should stop doing podcasts if I can't <laughs> speak, Zeke. Um, yeah, no, I'm... Well... I'm hearing it's polarizing, but also I'm hearing way more positive than negative. Yeah, I so. think the negative were like it's it's sort of cheap drama in the sense that it's like yeah well, overly exploitative and right, right. The whole it's the, the poster Aron- of the fish in the tiny bowl, that kind of that thing. Yeah, yeah, it's the it's the Aronofsky sort of like oh, it's a sad, depressing film. It's like right because uh, he's because he he's has been fat sick. Yeah, just so you know, it's it's that subject, <laughs> but that's a very like Aronofsky doesn't make a lot of very positive films, does he? And and I think some no. people get, some people think that that's just because it's really negative and depressing that that's sort of over the top. Yeah, but people no, say that um, about BoJack too, like that it's ah uh, sort of. I know one person literally ever that thinks BoJack is. I mean, like BoJack is a very sad show. Yeah, but it's like. I'm sorry, I don't, I don't buy that. There's literally one person I know who doesn't like BoJack. I'm calling BS on it. <laughs> <laughs> oh goodness! And finally, this one isn't so much as part of that that circuit release that's coming out, but you have a film called What's Love Got to Do with It, which is a romantic comedy about a filmmaker who decides to document her best friend's journey towards arranged marriage. Wow! Yeah, there you go. Very nice. Beautiful. That's Beautiful. it, D. That's what's coming to cinemas and streaming this well, we're week. We're not covering any of those next week on the show. That's not saying we might not watch some of those in the next oh, week. Oh, absolutely, we will. We won't be covering that show, uh, that film in particular. I'm sure some of them will get mentions in future weeks. Yeah, if I can watch Tar in the next week, that'd be awesome. I'm yeah. so keen to see that. But Jake, what are we watching next week? Next week on the show, Zeke, we're watching Babylon. <laughs> what about you? Sorry. If you could go anywhere in the whole world, where would you go? 
I always want to be part of something bigger. I love that answer. Something that lasts, that means something. Something yes. more important than life. Yes. It's written in the stars. I am a star. If I had money, I would only spend it on things that were fun, you know? Not boring things like taxes. I'm just waiting for everyone to party forever. When I first moved to LA, signs on all the doors said, no actors or dogs allowed. I changed that. And now, y'all ready for something different? Candace's depravity and outrageous excess lead to the rise and fall of several ambitious dreamers in 1920s Hollywood. Look at that vague logline yet again. I'm here for it. This is like three hours and nine minutes, apparently. Oh, boy. But, okay. it, I mean, hey, so was The Wolf of Wall Street, so... So looking at that two and two together. The this latest. is also getting really split in the middle reviews. Cool. So That's what you like. They make for more interesting conversations. That is very true. They do. Sometimes I like it because I'm like, yes, a film that's going to challenge me. Yes. And then I realize, oh, it's split in the middle because it's actually crap. And not a lot of people can tell the difference between a good and crap film sometimes. But I am generally very, very excited for Babylon. Yeah. I'm ignoring all the noise. The white noise. Yeah. We'll Where mention that... again next week, don't worry. Yeah. I was going to say, we'll go for a month consecutive. Every again. episode in season five will mention the film White Noise by Noah Bomback. Yeah. <laughs> by the end, it'll be the transformation from it being crap to mediocre to it's a brilliant masterpiece. Yeah, it's like we love it. Noah Bomback, you, you masterful genius. We just keep you. talking about it. <laughs> it must be good. It must be good. We just we can't stop talking about it. Yeah. What yeah. a film. Uncharted only got three weeks. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, we, yeah, that dropped. That dropped quick. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, no worries. All right, well, until then, thank you for joining us for the Cinema Sideshow Podcast. I was Zeke. I was Jake. And we'll catch you next week with Damien Chazelle's Babylon.